Welcome to 7 Seconds or Less, a podcast about the NBA and the Phoenix Suns. My name is Max McCauley, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host. His name is David Nash. David, how you doing, man? I'm doing good, Max. It's good to be back, and our guest probably doesn't know this, but we've been wanting to have him on for a while as well. So last episode of our positional series, and it's a big one. Yeah, it absolutely is. It's probably the most important of the position previews series because it's about the player who maybe matters the most to whether we improve or not. And as you alluded to, we have a fantastic guest for it. He is an editor and writer for fan-sided NBA and The Step Back. He's also a Phoenix Suns reporter. His name is Gerald Bourget. Gerald, thanks for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for building me up so much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to give you a good intro. You deserve one. Uh, So, of course, as I mentioned, this episode will focus on DeAndre Ayton. Uh, but we'll also get into Aaron Baines a little bit and maybe some other possible backup fives. David, on Aaron Baines, I understand he's currently playing pretty well for your national squad. Is that correct? He did okay in our first one. Uh, he had 10-4, and four actually, in our 108-92 win over Canada. And, of course, Ricky Rubio is also in the World Cup representing Spain and the Phoenix Suns, I suppose. And he had 17-9 and nine in his first one. Uh, 101-62 win over Tunisia, and I've just woken up to find out that he had 17-4 and in a 73-63 win over Puerto Rico, but uh, your guys' national team, Team USA, got over the Czech Republic 88-67, and they play again today, I believe, as well as my team, Max Australia, playing as well, so that's getting us through a pretty slow news time at the moment that was probably this week headlined by a guy by the name of Ben Moore working out for the Phoenix Suns after doing very well against the Team USA team, I believe, in those select game warm-ups that maybe put him on a few teams' radars. But that's pretty much all we've had this week. As I said, for the next little while, the World Cup will at least keep us going. And I can't say I'm confident if it's, say, Team USA versus the field maybe is the question. I think they're a little shaky, and I'd probably go Serbia if I had to choose one team and not just the field. What about you guys? Max, have have you got a prediction for the World Cup? So I have to admit I have not watched a single second of it yet. I was pretty focused on football over the weekend, but I guess if it's Team USA versus the field, I'd pick the field. Uh, But if I'm going to have to pick one, I'd, I'd probably pick Team USA. How about you, Gerald? Yeah, I would I would agree with David that Team Serbia looks like the biggest threat if it's not going to be team, team USA. I, I still think the Americans pull it out, but my money would be if there was going to be an upset, it'd be Serbia to do it. That's really interesting. So, pardon my ignorance. Who's like who are their lead lead guys in that team? Jokic is uh is the man in the middle, but he's played I think only about 40 minutes over the Serbia's first two games, Gerald. But uh, why don't you well, let us know the rest of the team? Um, well, let's see. So Teodosic is out, right? He's not even yes. playing now. Yeah. Um, who else do they have? 
they have a very deep team. They have like five. They have Bogdanovich, obviously, and he obviously is a uh, a sore subject for Suns fans. Miss him, but <laughs> and plays uh, plays very well in FIBA basketball, which makes it uh, even worse for Suns fans looking at box scores and things as well. I think, but they're starting Boban in the middle as well, Max, and and almost. <laughs> right. You know, having Jokic as their power forward, which Wait, is nuts. Boban so, and Nikola Jokic together, a, a yeah. fair bit. So yeah, and then splitting them up a little bit as well. But as Gerald said, very deep team with NBA players and uh, non-NBA players as well. Jovic, I believe, is one of their main playmakers with Teodosic out. Um, and yeah, they they've looked good so far. So them, Spain have looked very good. Uh, France are probably up there as well, but. Yeah, I, I think Team USA have the habit in these tournaments of kind of just warming themselves up and the, the format kind of lends to them getting a few, you know, warm-up games, so to speak, under their belt before really hitting their stride. So it'll be interesting when we get to the uh, knockout stage, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And uh, before we move on to Aiton, uh, this Ben Moore fellow, I, I know absolutely nothing about him. Gerald, do you have any Ben Moore takes? I have none. This is like <laughs> I, this is like the peak August news cycle right now. With yes. the and he played for the uh, the Pacers and the Austin Spurs, I believe, the last couple of years in the G League. Um, he's actually a, a pretty impressive guy if you go and watch some footage of him. Very long, very athletic, can shoot it from outside just a little bit. Um, but yeah, he's a he's one of those power forwards that you and I have spoken about a bit, Max, in terms of. Uh, you can kind of see how he would play with Aiton and, and make up for some of his deficiencies, which I guess is a great segue into talking about Aiton uh, and some of those positives and negatives and, and getting him with the right guys on the court, Max. Yeah, I think that is a good transition. Let's start talking about DeAndre Aiton. So I think we're going to start with the offense. Uh, mm-hmm. For this conversation, uh, I've put together some comparisons to other centers around the league uh, in two groups. So I have Aiton and his peers. Uh, JJJ and Bagley from his draft. Yep. And then a more established, good young big uh, tier, which is Miles Turner, Carl uh, Anthony Towns, and Joel Embiid. So I'll let you guys start by giving your kind of opinions overall, maybe what he does well offensively. And then once you guys do that, I can dig into the stats a little bit and see how much of that is borne out in those. So, mm-hmm. Gerald, uh, what do you think? What, what from Aiden's rookie year do you think he did well offensively? Uh, you know, where, where was he already uh, a good NBA player? I mean, obviously, you got to start with his finishing ability and just the touch around the basket, being able to be efficient, clean up in there. Um, you know, obviously, he's seven feet tall and built like a Greek god, but like he mm-hmm. converted 71% of his shots within five feet of the basket. Um, and that ranked eighth out of 148 players that had at least 200 attempts from that range. Wow. So he's very good at cleaning up around the basket, which is exactly what he was advertised. Um, coming out of college. He was also actually pretty good in post-up. He was like in the 76th percentile. And, you know, coming into it, a lot of people were wondering about his post-up ability. He was efficient when he got his touches and when, you know, he was able to go up strong with it. Um, A lot of people wanted him to go up strong more often, but that passing (laughs) out of those double teams was actually very good as well. And I think his assist numbers might have been a little bit better if the Suns had literally anyone who could shoot last year. (laughs) So hopefully that will be reflected this year with his passing ability, especially on screen and rolls when he dives to the rim. Um, Because him and Booker have a a pretty functional chemistry in that so far. 
And it'll be interesting to see throw another ball handler like Rubio in the mix, what he'll be able to do with that. But yeah, offensively, very good around the basket, good on post-ups, um, especially good on putbacks. You know, the easy stuff that you want a big man to thrive in, he obviously has that base skill set right now. David, what do you think? Yeah, I pretty much agree with Gerald on that. I think, you know, great that Gerald mentioned, you know, hopefully having better teammates uh, this upcoming season than last season because, you know, a lot of set, a lot was said about, you know, Aiton and the way that he was used last season. I actually think he was used quite well. That kind of led to the ultra-efficient rookie year that a lot of people like to talk about from DeAndre Ayton. So, like, 16.3 points per game, 60.8 true shooting percentage. As Gerald said, he was just, you know, crazy efficient around the rim, and they really simplified the game for him and and made it predictable for him, and that's why he was most efficient. But for me, and I've kind of been harping on, I've, I've looked over a few preseason things uh researching for this podcast with Aiton and you know I was talking about gravity in in summer league and that's still the big skill for me and and that's where the the better teammates come in Max so you know Mm -hmm. it's still evident to me how much gravity he has as a diver you know roller even in the post as Gerald said he's actually pretty good there and might actually start drawing some double teams and with better teammates be able to hit them you know we had some pretty high assist games from Aiton early on in the year before they had to I guess, change up the offense a little bit as pieces were getting shuffled out of the starting five and, and new guys put in. So, you know, maybe he has a little bit more license to to work out of the post next year. You know, he had 3.1 offensive boards last year, which kind of surprised me when I look back at that because I, I don't really recall, you know, him having just license to crash the boards. Um, so that was an interesting thing and a, a thing that I think he brings to the NBA straight away as a, a real NBA skill. And then I just think with Rubio, as Gerald said, we're going to get a lot more pick and roll. And I think, you know, we had a predictable offense last year, particularly when they needed a bucket. It was that kind of Booker, Aiton chemistry. Now they're going to have, you know, two or three kind of man games that they can play, be less predictable and get Aiton the ball in in different scenarios and, and less predictable scenarios. So, you know, those entry passes that we saw that just got uh, cut off because everyone sees them coming from a mile away or or they can't even be thrown a lot of the time. You know, one thing, Max, if you do get a chance to start looking at Ricky Rubio in the World Cup is that guy just puts the, the ball on a dime every time, whether it's in the half court or the fast break, you know, throwing it over as an outlet pass. Uh, our friend Callan Olsen uh, highlighted a couple of those from the game last night. So listeners can jump over to, to his timeline and have a look at that. But, you know, that's the thing for me is is it's going to be a much more variable offense next year. And uh, if Aiton can keep that efficiency up, it's, it's really going to help the team, Max. Yeah, not to go on a tangent here, but I think that's one of the things that separates Ricky Rubio from a guy like Devin Booker. I, I think Devin Booker sees a lot of the passes, but the, yep. uh, the pinpoint accuracy is not quite there like it is with a guy uh, like Rubio. But anyway, b- back to Aiton. You guys nailed pretty much all the stuff that stuck out to me when I was looking through cleaning the glass stuff. Uh, as always, these are percentiles among bigs. So rim percentage, uh, he's 87th percentile. It's above all these guys. JJJ is lower, 73. Bagley, 57. Even Embiid, 67, 31 as a rookie, Embiid was. Uh, wow. 74, Turner, 57. So he's he's definitely better than everybody else's rim around the rim already, arguably. Uh, short mid-range, the same thing. I won't go through all the percentiles, but very similar. Uh, and then offensive rebounding. I like how you noted that one because he was 80th. 
And uh, that was better than all those guys. I just didn't expect that, Max. I did not expect that when I saw it. That totally surprised me. It's not something that I went looking for. I actually went kind of looking for it, thinking maybe he can get better in that area, you know, maybe to give him more license to crash, as I said. But, yeah, that was a a real surprise to me, something that I, I guess had a blind spot on watching during the year. Well, it excites you also because if he's already in the 80, if he can get really, really good in that area, right? So maybe he could be like among the league best offensive rebounders, and that would be a very, yep. a very nice skill. Uh, and then finally, I just go to this this thing. It's interesting. He was 52, uh, Bagley 14, really low, JJJ 31. But then you have Embiid 92, Cat 89. So there's a really big spread over there. I think maybe because the bigs just don't have that many assists, so it's easy to spread out over this thing. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think Aiton, like you said, early on showed some potential there. It kind of fell off a little bit, but then also, as Gerald pointed out, you know, who the hell is he passing to? Uh, okay, <laughs> let's move on to what we want to see and develop uh, offensively. Where, where was uh, areas of struggle and Gerald is areas, you know, you seek immediate improvement in? Yeah, I mean, obviously there's there was a lot of consternation about his, you know, off the dribble moves, about his ability mm. to take it to the basket. He wasn't doing it often enough, whatever you want to say about it. Um, I don't think he was that bad in that respect, but there's obviously still room for improvement. Um, especially a first year rookie who doesn't have that much space. Cause as we mentioned, there's no, there was very little gravity on the perimeter for the Suns for most of the year. And so I think that will improve with the supporting cast he has now. Also, obviously like the mid range, just shooting from the mid range and from three, I'm, I am curious to get your guys' thoughts on his three point ability because, you know, under Kokoskov, it was pretty clear that they didn't want him taking threes. That's, yep. Whether that's because that was a coaching thing or because he can't shoot them, there's been a lot of talk about that. But it'll be interesting to see if Monty lets him, you know, get one or two attempts up this year because um, he only took four last year, I think, and he missed all four of them. <laughs> yeah, they were desperation ones, if I remember correctly, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're into shot clock kind of things. Uh, yeah, David, you want to jump on that and start his three-point shooting, whether you see it coming this year or not, and then go into the rest of what you want to see from him? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll start with a question to both of you. What's more important if you could only pick one? You know, Gerald's touched on both of them here in, in his little intro to this bit. Is it the three-point shot or is it just being more aggressive, whether that's down low or off the dribble, uh, you know, off those elbow touches and stuff that he was getting last year where we really only saw one or two plays where he took it to the basket, Max. I'll go to you first. If you could only have one of those things for next season, which one would you choose? I think I would – so it's two different questions. If I could just uh, magically give him one of those two things, I would make him like an Embiid-type force going inside. Yeah, I don't really see that ever happening. So for me, realistically, it's more important for him to become a three-point shooter because I think that's how he – will uh, reach his peak offensive value. More more of a car and theater hounds type than an Embiid type. But uh, what do you think, Gerald? Yeah, I mean, I think if we're being realistic for next season, I think letting him take a couple of shots from three, because, you know, with all the additional playmakers that the Suns have now on this roster, it feels like something that he might not get a chance to do as much as he mm-hmm. might have last year. Um, you know, you've got Rubio, even Sharich, Booker with the ball in his hands, like, Aiton's role on offense is definitely probably going to be, you know, screener, diver, putbacks, post-ups, those kind of things. But yeah, so I think for this year, if he could at least competently spread to the mid-range and take a few threes, we'll see how it goes. I'm I'm still very, you know, I don't I honestly couldn't tell you if Aiton has three-point shooting ability at this point because mm-hmm. yeah. we haven't there's been a bit of conflicting talk about whether, you know, in practice he knocks him down, but everybody in practice in the NBA knocks down threes like these mm-hmm. guys are the best <laughs> in the world 
there's a big difference between doing it in practice unguarded rep after rep and like on the floor in an NBA game. So I'm very curious to see what Monty Williams opinion is on that and you know how much free reign he gives him from three. Just on that, I was watching a, a video yesterday of Draymond Green running full court drills from corner to corner, and he was hitting every three-point shot after sprinting <laughs> the length of the court uh, to each corner. So he's obviously working on his fitness. Did he and still his- shoot in practice uh, like he's wearing a backpack? <laughs> it, it it is a little better, and and some people were commenting on how he's totally revolutionized his shot. Uh, the backpack is still there. It's maybe only got uh, one brick in it instead of three this time, Max, but it's definitely still there. But I've kind of changed my tune on this. You know, I was a big supporter of Igor uh, in general last year, as everyone listening to this knows, but, but also his philosophy with DeAndre and not letting him shoot threes. I don't think it's because he can't shoot them. You know, he shot one three a game at U of A and, and you know, 34.3% he was on those. So he's definitely got it in his arsenal going forward, I think. As Gerald's touched on, his touch and hands are, are that good that I think he can become a decent three-point shooter. Whether he can become a, you know, Towns-level shooter at that size is is yet to be seen and we won't know until he, he starts letting it fly. But, you know, as much as I supported it last year, you know, I, I am changing my tune on it just from re-watching Suns games so you know the quandary here Max is obviously that he doesn't fall in love with it you know even Sixers fans you know Embiid being the example (laughs) someone that you've brought up quite a bit on this pod already but you know he's a thousand percent more aggressive than Aiton is as you said and even he falls in love with the outside shot a little bit too much for someone who's so dominant down low so I think that's why they avoided it in his rookie season but you know, if they actually let him shoot it, just watching the offense last year, I think so much more could open up if if the defense isn't sagging off him, particularly at the top of the key. And we'll talk about that with Baines a, a little bit later. But if he's shooting that, I think maybe some off the dribble stuff for him can come to fruition because he has got a man up on him instead of sagging off, uh, you know, DHO stuff, some cuts, maybe some pick and pop. And even high-low stuff with the other bigs, I think he's a good enough passer to take advantage of that as well. So that's kind of the aim for me. And I think eventually what you're really wanting here is him to get to the line a little bit more, whether that's just trying to get him to be more aggressive or whether you give him the three-point shot and that actually opens up more scenarios for him to get fouled going towards the basket, Max. Because you know we've touched on it. He was 2.7 free throw attempts last year, which just is nowhere near good enough for a guy playing his position and at his size. And you know, I looked at college, 5.5. I think that's a, a really good target for him to set for himself. It's a lofty target after his rookie season, but that's where it needs to be after his sophomore season. Or I'm going to be really worried about him. I think you make a good point about the threat of the three-point shot making him a better uh, rim attacker. I mean, do you remember those games against Brooklyn when they just didn't even play on him at all out there? Yep. It was like, embarrassing. Took uh, him out of the game completely. A hundred percent. You can't. You can't do that if he's shooting threes. So I, I, I'm definitely in favor of him shooting threes. I think the rookie season thing from Igor made sense to have him focus on other things because you don't want him coming into the league and just starting off just blasting threes off, and that's all he does. Um, but I, there are some things about his three-point shot that I, I'm concerned about, more so than when he was coming into the league. I thought he was a surefire bet to be a three-point shooter. I, I still think it's very likely. But the fact yep. that he, he was not really that good from the free-throw line last year, which is 
kind of concerning. I mean, he wasn't terrible, but he was like 52 percentile among bigs. He should be better than that. Yeah. Uh, the long mid range, 49 percentile. Like you got to be better than that, man. That's like one of the things he was supposed to be bringing in right away. So, you know, if he's not shooting efficiently from those ranges, it's a little concerning for his uh, three-point range. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say, you know, maybe he's not going to be crawling through the towns and come from the league as a great three-point shooter. But, you know, a guy like Miles Turner came in as, you know, not a good shooter at all and then progressively got better just because he has the touch. I think because of Aiton's touch, it's hard for me to not see him being at least a catch-and-shoot, you know, uh, corner shooter and probably above-the-break shooter too. Yeah, I don't know if he's going to be one of those guys who can like, shoot off the dribble from three. Like, that's kind of like the – outside projection for him and that we thought maybe a possibility because of how fluid he is for his size. But, you know, you know, I think, I think that that's sort of can becoming increasingly less likely. Now uh, I'm focusing a little more on uh, the catch and shoot ability from him, but uh, you guys covered the foul shooting already. He doesn't, he doesn't get fouled enough. That's pretty obvious. And, you know, even on the number of attempts he's taking, he's not getting fouled on those attempts as mm-hmm. much as other players are. Uh, and that just comes down to the fact that he's not aggressive enough. Uh, I don't think he plays to his, physical capabilities yet part of that could be because he's a rookie part of it may be inherent in his game uh that's something we're going to find out you know i think pretty soon over the next couple of seasons uh before we move on max i thought i'd ask gerald you know someone's going to certainly more games than i am you know i see it a little bit on the tv coverage with the the team getting into him but what was it like last year gerald with that eight and aggression could you see it in spurts and and parts with the team getting into him, you know, were people yelling on the sidelines when he had touches to be more aggressive? As I said, I saw it maybe a couple of times in in TV coverage that you pick up on the effects mics and stuff, but what was it like being around the team and and even quotes after the game? Was was there a lot of talk from internal part of the team where they, they wanted DA to be more aggressive? Yeah, I think everybody in the arena wants DA to be a little more aggressive. <laughs> if you can feel it through the TV, you can definitely feel it in person. I didn't get that sense as much from, um, you know, like his teammates. Um, sometimes yep. you definitely saw it, but it was usually, I mean, I feel like when it comes to his shooting, a lot of it is in his head because like Max mentioned, there were those games where, you know, defenders just sagged and he didn't know what to do. Like he wasn't confident enough to just rise up and take it right away. Like he was looking for a pass. He, it was just those awkward moments of hesitation. Yeah. And so I think, you know, he didn't want to keep taking them, but he couldn't just sit there and not do anything with the ball. So it was those awkward moments and you could kind of see it even in warmups too. Sometimes like you can see he's not getting enough rise up out of his jump shot because he's got the touch to get it there from the mid range. He's such a big guy. You know, if you rise up at that height, you're going to sail the ball over the rim, but like (laughs) you can definitely see like his mental process unfolding, even in something as simple as warm up sometimes where he's just, he's thinking a little too much instead of just rising up and doing it and shooting. Um, and, and, you know, there were those moments where the crowd, you can feel that like crowd clamoring, like buzzing, like, why isn't he shooting it? He's wide open, like shoot it. And it's just uncomfortable. I I think those things will go away a little bit more, especially if Monty is all gung ho about him, you know, letting it fly if he's open. And, and part of that just comes with being more confident. You know, he was a rookie last year. He's playing with hardly any NBA teammates that are real NBA players. <laughs> like <laughs> he was having to figure out a lot of it on the go in a situation that's not conducive to learning. And the guy still put up, you know, 16 and 10 on ridiculous efficiency. So give him actual NBA players, 
give him a coach who's just going to let him shoot or at least dictate where his spots are and when to take them, I, I think he'll be a lot more confident in that respect this year. Gerald, if you were the GM of the Phoenix Suns and drafted a center number one overall, would you bring in Isaiah Cannon to be his starting point guard? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I can promise you I would not, and that alone should be at the top of my resume for when I apply for the next Phoenix Suns. (laughs) (laughs) Makes you more qualified than the last guy. Uh, All right, we got to dive into it now. Let's get into the defense. It's probably the most uh, talked about part of Aiton's game, and, and for good reason, so... Uh, Gerald, let's start with the things that Aiton did well last season. What did you like to, from him on defense? Uh, because I know it's probably probably mostly going to be not good, but what, what was the, the yeah. small amount of good? Well, I mean, is it a cop-out to say I liked it when he was focused and not tired? Like, it's not like, a cop-out because it's true. <laughs> I feel like his biggest issues were fatigue and focus. Like, we, yep. And I'm pretty sure we've – David and I were talking about this on Twitter the other day, but like – when he was locked in, like that overtime game, I think it was Orlando, yep. um, the one where he made all those big plays down the stretch, like he was in the zone. He was locked in, he was focused, and he was making the plays that a guy hit with his size and athleticism can make. And, you know, it wasn't just that game. Like there were other examples when one-on-one he fared very well defensively. Like there was that stretch where the Suns actually looked like a real team and they beat the Bucks and the Lakers and – Aiton matched up with Giannis and LeBron and he held his own. Like he, you know, obviously LeBron and Giannis are going to get theirs, but I thought Aiton did very well, especially on the ball. Um, He's got Mm -hmm. the feet to be good on the ball. His biggest issues are like, you know, off the ball, pick and roll stuff, help stuff, you know, just losing focus, those kind of things. And that's natural for a young team that, you know, I, I love Igor, but you could tell there were games when the team just, they looked lost. Like they didn't look like they, them and the coach were on the same page. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I think he had, he, you know, like the pre-draft reports were all saying he has the ability. It's just sometimes it's a matter of focus and know how and all of that stuff. David. Yeah. It, it's kind of the opposite to what Jared was just talking about before we jumped into this on the shot. You know, he's such a rhythm shooter, got such great hands that when he's not overthinking things, uh, you know, he's hitting those mid-range jumpers. And, and as soon as he has to think about it, you can just tell he, he just, you know, dives down to being a, a 0% shooter in those situations. You could just tell when he was going to miss every single time. I'm really glad that Gerald brought that up. But it's almost the opposite with the defense. When he's locked in, focused, really thinking about the defense, uh, you know, he's actually quite efficient and, and quite impactful in those scenarios. They were just few and far between last year, Max. Uh, and as Gerald said, when he was not focused or a little bit gassed, uh, that's when we saw a lot of the uh, low light plays jump up on Twitter and, and things that we we didn't like seeing from DA. But, you know, I jumped into it this week with a, a seven plays or less thread on eight and just looking at what he did do from a block scenario in certain situations, Max. And, you know, I'm a big believer in, in particularly with rookies, you know, looking at what they are capable of and, and trying to build on that. And I think, as Gerald said, he has all the tools, those great hands, quick feet, as Gerald said, uh, huge size, uh, and, you know, a decent leap, if not a great leap for a, a guy his size. So, you know, those hands in particular, uh, the amount of blocks he retained, I think he, he retained, you know, almost a third of the 67 blocks that he had last year just to himself. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's kind of just feathery blocking shots, which, you know, it, it's not as, uh, you know, 
great for the highlight reel or the the top 10 on on any given night but you know when he's grabbing those and then outletting them that's actually a, a skill that he can really build on i think and probably the last point here is you know, I'd, I'd back up gerald in terms of him being quite good defensively when the play is in front of him you know a lot of his blocks were on guards last year i think 44 out of the 67 on the top of my head so you know i'd actually support a real switch heavy d which is something that's been discussed with Aiton with how quick he is on the perimeter of of something that you should do because it's it's really when the play's behind him or he's having to rotate over that he really struggles which we'll get into in a little bit max but you know for me that means coming back in tremendous shape you know not just good shape you know really coming back being able to run the floor because if you couple all those tools with a guy that just doesn't stop that's when he becomes totally unstoppable on both ends for me. And you know, I think of uh, a Brooklyn game, I think it was the back-to-back after the Washington 3 OT game where he was just, you know, the, the Suns lost that game, but he was the only one that wanted to play. And then that Denver, you know, quarter where he exploded because he was just totally outworking everyone. So, yeah, you know, I'll throw it to you, Max. Uh, if I could add one thing for the second season only, it would actually be the cardio because I think it'll open up a hell of a lot of other stuff. But uh, let me know what, what you think about his current defense. Yeah, I think you guys nailed most of my thoughts there. I think he, you know, coming into the league, the thing that got me most excited about Aiden and the reason why I thought his upside was extremely high uh, is that I thought he could, in the playoffs, stay on the floor and switch heavy schemes. Uh, you know, yeah. it, it wouldn't get played off the way certain centers do. And I don't think he foreclosed that at all. I think he showed uh, a lot of that in his rookie year. Uh, Gerald mentioned the Bucks games were probably the best example of that. Uh, yep. The LA game as well. I think there was a game in Golden State where he stayed with uh, Kevin Durant a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. He just has the ability. He's so athletic and so fluid and so big that he can play with those freaks in the NBA. The, guy, the, the giant athletic guys who no one else can guard and can kind of stay in front of those guys. And that yeah. portends very well for him as a playoff basketball player, I think. Uh, and the issue is just going to be, you know, he doesn't protect the rim. Um, and we'll get into that in a second. But that's going <laughs> to be key for them to find somebody to play next to him who can, uh, you know, be a four but also protect the rim at a level that, you know, makes DeAndre Ayton work. Uh, it's, it's too bad there wasn't one of those guys available at number 11 in the draft. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we'll, we'll well, guess from there. Uh, the one thing that really surprised me with Ayton, I mean, obviously, if you, you want to talk about defensive rebounding, he was good there. Uh, much, much better than JJJ and Bagley. Uh, not as good as Cat as a rookie, actually, which surprised me. Cat's actually been a really good defensive rebounder, uh, but better mm. than Turner's ever been. So that, that's something he does very well. Uh, and then steal percentage. He was not a bad steals guy last year at all for a big. Um, he was a 59% steal percentage uh, percentile guy. You know, lower than JJJ, obviously, way better than Bagley. Again, so great hands. Great, unbelievable great hands. hands for his and, you know, obviously lateral movement as well. So I, th- yeah. I think if he could, if he could really turn, turn up the awareness, he could be a great steals guy. As a center, uh, I don't know if that's ever going to come, but that's something to you know possibly look forward to. But uh, that's about <laughs> all I have to say on Aiton's good defense. Uh, let's go ahead and move on, Gerald. <laughs> what do you think Aiton could work on defense? And you're not allowed to just say effort. <laughs> you're not allowed to say that. You have to figure okay. some other stuff out. Yeah. So aside from uh, focus and effort, which you know to be fair was a problem for everyone except mm-hmm. for Trevor Reza night one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, the rim protection you mentioned, it's it's not good. I think he got better in that respect as the year went on, if I remember the numbers right. Yep. But it still wasn't anything to write home about, and it's definitely not good enough to be 
the anchor of a playoff team in the future, mm-hmm. which is obviously what this whole thing is about. So um, that's going to have to get a lot better. Um, the pick and roll coverage, you know, we talked about how he could hold his own on an island or on the ball. And he did yep. that pretty often. I think a lot of guards were surprised at how well he was able to stick with them and force a contested shot. But that pick and roll coverage still needs a lot of work. Um, I remember, I think it was Charlotte. I think Kemba Walker down the stretch of a close game, they just put him in pick and roll after pick and roll after pick and roll. Yep. And they just diced him up. And it was, it was very obvious what they were doing. And the Suns had nothing to stop it because that pick and roll coverage was just not good. You know, obviously some off the ball stuff, help defense, which is, you know, complex, admittedly so for a first year player in an NBA scheme on a poor defensive team. Like that's a tough situation to be good in, <laughs> um, but it does have to get better. That awareness off the ball, um, that help side rim protection. And, you know, as David mentioned, most of his blocks were on guards. So against big guys, you know, that rim protection is is going to be key. But yeah, I, I think I think those are the main areas of concern for me. David, what about you? Yeah, I, I'm pretty much on par with you there. But uh, Max, I'm going to let you jump in because you're having to back up both Gerald and I and, and just throw in <laughs> little bits and pieces. And I know uh, of the four bits of Aiton discussion, I think this is probably uh, the one you're most passionate about. So how about you jump in and, and I'll round us out at the end, hopefully to put a positive spin on things although i am going to be very hard on Aiton this year that's all i'll say for now but max you jump in i like how you're making sure the listeners can finish with something other than me talking about it in <laughs> uh, i'll just go to some of the statistics here so the opponent's accuracy at the rim his on off for that was two second percentile in the nba uh teams shot seven percent better at the rim when he was in the game than when he wasn't uh that's a problem JJ Davis at 88, uh, Bagley at 39 percentile. So, like, you know, Bagley isn't very good either, but second percentile is like a next level bad. You can have that from your starting center. It's just not going to work. You know, and I, I looked at DeAndre Jordan. Uh, he's always in my comparison for some guy who came into the league as a bad defender and then became yeah. a good defender. Yeah. Uh, he came in 25th percentile as a rookie, then fourth as a sophomore. So that's, you know, eight in levels. Uh, and then eventually got that up to, you know, in the 70-ish range. So, that provides you some hope there. Maybe he can be like DeAndre Jordan. And I think it was a lot of similar stuff. I think DeAndre Jordan is always physically capable of doing it. It was just the awareness focus issues. So the hope yep. is that Aiton can do the same kind of thing. Uh, just looking at overall efficient uh, efficient field goal percentage, Aiton 21st percentile there on off with the Suns. And listen, it's not like there was a lot of great players behind Aiton coming and play defense. I mean, Holmes had a decent year last year, but he's not a world beater. Uh, so I think I just think you know those numbers just show how stark – uh, the differences between Aiton and some of these other bigs that we're looking at. Uh, Turner, Catton, and B are all much, much better than that in, in these areas. You know, Cat Cat has, you know, been maligned as a defender a lot of times, but I mean, he was 87th this last season and on off. Uh, 72 as a rookie. So th- the, the difference between how bad Aiton is and how bad some of the other guys have been, you know, who've been called bad are, it, it's, it's stark. So even if Aiton's not going to be the primary rim protector, if they find somebody like uh, a Brandon Clark, or a Draymond Green, or somebody who can be, you know, sort of more versatile four who can actually cover up right a little bit. I think that will definitely help. But it's hard for me to see the Suns ever winning uh, a title if DeAndre Ayton is the second, the second percentile. He's going to have to be at least, you know, slightly below average if they're going to be in that conversation, David. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think you can keep banging on about Ayton being, you know, sixteen and ten on great efficiency. 
in his rookie season and and building on that, you know, what kind of a monster can he be in a few years' time? But, you know, the nuts and bolts of it is, is when it all boils down and the Suns are hopefully fingers crossed in high leverage playoff games, if those things are still happening on the defensive end, none of it matters. He would have to be absolutely historic as an offensive player talking like, you know, better than Wilt Chamberlain (laughs) historic in order for the Suns to actually be, you know, end of... April, June type team in the NBA if the defense remains that bad. But that 2% is worse than I thought even, Max. That the, <laughs> yeah. It doesn't get much worse than 2%. But you know how that lifts up to maybe even DeAndre Jordan's 25%, you know, almost instantaneously, Max, actually challenging shots. Yeah. That's the frustrating thing. There's so many play, or not so many, but there was plays last year where Aiton just went up, challenged, you know, used verticality, used his size, and it's amazing how the guards can't finish over a man who's seven foot one tall and built like a Greek god, as <laughs> Gerald said at the start. So it was the fact, I think that was the most frustrating thing last year is just seeing him flat-footed on the other side of the rim, like not even contesting. And, you know, James Jones at Summer League mentioned how on some nights it's going to be great to have a guy like Aaron Baines and, and DeAndre can sit and watch him go to work. And, that was really key for me. You know, we've also got Kaminsky and Diallo there. Uh, Diallo might be that kind of rim protection option. It's definitely not going to be Frank Kaminsky. Um, you know, <laughs> so we might get to them at the end of the episode as with, you know, injuries and, and foul trouble and stuff, how we might be able to throw those guys in at centre. But, you know, that's the thing. He needs to challenge more shots uh, and use his fouls. You know, he had two blocks per game is probably where I want him to be at at the end of next year. And the only way he gets there is to actually challenge around the rim. And, you know, that's what I'm going to be looking for. You asked Gerald at the top, like, what's the one thing that's not cardio or effort related? That's what it is for me. Just challenge more shots. I don't care if you get in foul trouble. You've got back up there now. I don't care if, you know, it, it results in some negative plays or, uh, you know, negative stats for Aiton still is you, you just can't see a rookie or a sophomore actually improve in this area unless they're getting reps at it. So, you know, MTN Adventure 14 on Twitter, Max, actually mm-hmm. threw a question of how many players make big defensive jumps in their second season in the NBA. And, and that's the question. It's really hard to judge. Situation year to year is really hard. And, you know, bad, we've talked about this, uh, I think, a couple episodes ago with Callan, you know, bad analytical defensive stats make it really hard to to pick up on those guys that have made those leaps. So for me, it's all going to be in the eye test on this one is, is does he come in with the right attitude and is he willing to, to contest more and challenge more and put some guys on their ass? I know that's a real like 90s NBA way of thinking about it. You know, centers can't do that much anymore with flagrant fouls and stuff, but I would just love early on in the season, you know, game one, two, three, whatever it is, Max, you know, someone goes at him at the rim and he just, you know, puts them on their ass. Doesn't have to be dirty or anything like that, but he's so big and strong that, you know, he can put a guy on his ass with a, with a fair, you know, play on the ball. Yeah, no, absolutely. Suns fans complain about how Luka Doncic just gets all the highlights and all the coverage. Aiden should maybe make some highlight worthy plays if he wants to be on sports center. Like Correct. If you dunk on somebody or you have vicious blocks, that's that's how you get on SportsCenter. I'm not saying that's the goal for him, but those are the kind of plays that, you know, they inspire your team. They they, they lead to more effort. They, you just can't play. It's, it's death by a thousand cuts. 
is what it is. Yep. You're not fouling anybody, but if you're just allowing that passivity over and over and over, it's not going to work out. Uh, Gerald, I, something that David said in there, I think is the most frustrating thing about Aiton and also the biggest question with him that I just don't know the answer to. And that's him talking about how Aiton just won't challenge shots. He, you know, he'll let guards go by. What do you think it is? Is it that he doesn't understand he can get to the shot? Is it that his reaction time is super poor? Is it just, is he just totally asleep? Why is it that he, you know, us fans watching can see clearly that he has the opportunity to block certain shots or at least challenge them and he'll just let them go by? What's going on? I think it's a combination of things and it's something that you, that's a lot more noticeable up close when you're like in the arena. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I don't know how much like basketball playing experience you guys have, whether it's, you know, high school, just AAU, rec league, whatever. But when you're playing on a bad team, you don't feel the need to try as hard on defense. And mm-hmm. I hate to like, I hate to chalk it up to like mindset or attitude or, you know, put the blame elsewhere because he does have that responsibility as a seven footer to challenge those shots. But when you're playing on a team that's already down 15 and you know, you're a bad defense and you're already a step late because your awareness probably isn't where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. And you're fatigued a little bit too. That comes into play. Like all of that is very draining on your mindset and all kind of converge. And when you're playing on a bad team, you're just not incentivized as much to challenge those type of shots and that's no excuse obviously but it's it is harder to like put it in when you're tired and you're down by 15 pretty a step late like it's it's a it's a real thing like just give him the basket or let him take the shot hope he misses it maybe psych him out like it, it's a it's a lazy mindset and it's one that he'll need to correct and the Suns as a whole will need to correct if they want to be a respectable defense in the future Hopefully they have some more pieces to where that's not as prevalent this season. But I really do think last year it's hard to judge. And we've seen this for years now. It's hard to judge a lot of the Suns' young players in a vacuum because the way that they're being developed is not conducive to growth. It's just not. Like they're not being put in a situation where they can win. So hopefully with a lot of the guys they've added – and a new coaching change and just hopefully this is the clean slate that everyone needs to like actually give a damn on that end this year. Dude, if I'm going to make that excuse for Booker and say Booker's defense will improve once it starts to matter to the team and winning, then I have to give it to uh, Aiden too. It's only fair. It's absolutely true. I think that's why we saw the Orlando overtime as a different Aiden. That's why we saw when the Suns were competitive against the Bucks, the Lakers and the Warriors, we saw a different Aiden. It's because like you said, when you're you know you're you're vested in the game because you have a chance, it's fun. You're out there, and you're having a good time. It's just easier to play defense. Uh, David, you have a DeAndre Ayton game for us, right? I do, and I would probably just triple down on what you guys mentioned there, where you know it, if he is shown in a film session or something to have lost the Suns a game because he didn't challenge a shot, that's where we'll hopefully see some strides for DeAndre Ayton. I think because. He's a sponge. He loves to learn and he's definitely very reactionary. So I think, you know, if we can get to those scenarios, uh, we might see Aiton challenge more shots. Hopefully being a better team next year will help. But uh, I will throw to the question now for you, Max. Like the Rubio game we played last week, I thought we'd end with a game on Aiton. Are you guys happy to do so? Put yourselves on the line here. Let's do it. Sure. 
All right. I think we'll go with, like Rubio, I took all 29 starters plus a few more power forwards that can play center at, or that are you know playing power forward, but I see them more as centers, and then some backups in the NBA as well. But unlike Rubio, Max, we're not going to go for next year only. I want you to choose between Aiton and the alternatives after the next three years of play. So we're giving him a little bit of leeway here. Um, and we'll see what you think. So but before we start, like we did with Rubio, and I'll throw to you first, Max, and then we'll go to Gerald. Where do you think Aiton is going to rank among, let's say, 34 centers that I'm about to bring up in terms of who you would prefer Aiton or somebody else in three years' time, Max? Okay, so not over the next three years. It's what the players, I project them to look like in three or four years. Correct. Okay. Um, I'm probably going to be like fifth or sixth. Yep. Gerald, what about you? Yeah, I would probably, out of 34, you said? Uh, yes. Yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to say sixth on that one. I got him at best fourth for me and at worst eighth, but we'll get into that at the end. So I think we're all sitting around about in the same spot. But like last week, Max, group one, a bunch of guys that I'm just going to say no thanks to straight away, but I'll give you guys a chance to throw one of them back into the ring. Uh, DeAndre Jordan, Enos Cantor, Tristan Thompson, Alex Len, shout out Len, uh, Cody Zeller, uh, Bryant in Washington, Jonas Valanciunas, Potul, Willie Cauley-Stein, Avaka Subak. Uh, I've put Howard slash McGee because I don't know who's going to start <laughs> on that Lakers team. Uh, and hey, Deadman. Hey, that one really matters. you got to separate those out so we can decide which one. <laughs> and Deadman's the last one I've thrown into that group, even though I really like him. Is there anyone in that group from either of you guys that you would take over DeAndre Ayton? Well, you said three to four years down the line, and Alex Lynn only said he'll be an all-star next season, so I'm going to have to say <laughs> no on him. What about you, Gerald? Yeah, I'm going to say no. I, I I will give a shout-out to Thomas Bryant in Washington because I think yep. he, he, he put together a nice little season last year, and I'm interested to see how he builds on it this year. But no, I, I'm not going to put him over eight. <laughs> All right, group two's the two old group. There's three guys in here. They just count themselves out because of their 33, 34 age. So it's Al Horford, Marcus Gasol, and LaMarcus Aldridge. I'm guessing none of you think that they're still going to be putting up the numbers they are now in three years' time, guys? Probably not, although Al Horford did sign a four-year deal, right? So I guess Philly's hoping he is. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I would say Horford has the best shot of those three, but I wouldn't. I mean, I, I don't see it for any of the three. All right, we're getting to the interesting part now. These guys are middle of the pack. Andre Drummond, Brooke Lopez, Clint Campella, Derek Favors, Stephen Adams, Hassan Whiteside, Yusuf Nurkic, and Montrez Harrell. Max? Mm-hmm. Um, I think of – so here's what I'd say. I think a couple of those guys, there's probably a better chance – than not that they are better than Aiton, but I think just given the upside potential of DeAndre Aiton, I think you have to take him over all of those guys. Right. I, I would agree 100% there. I think you look at guys like Clint Capella or Steven Adams out of that group, and they're guys that have proven that they can contribute to winning basketball on legitimate contenders, but mm-hmm. they're also very pigeonholed in their role, and it, it feels kind of like a plateau thing. So if we're talking three years from now, I think it's hard to choose what they are now versus what Aiton could be. Yeah. 
All right, now we're getting into interesting territory. Group four, the young guns. Someone's going to get in trouble here, I'm thinking. Uh, <laughs> Jarrett Allen, Mitch Robinson, Wendell Carter, Bam Adebayo, and Triple J are in the young guns section here. Are any of you taking one of those guys over DeAndre Ayton? I'm going to let you go first, Gerald. <laughs> oh, um, I'm tempted with uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. I feel like I'd still take Aiton over the rest, um, even though like guys like Bam and Wendell Carter have you know shown early signs that they can be competent defenders, which is our biggest you know uh, concern for Aiton as yep. far as being a playoff team. I still think the only one I might take would be JJJ, and I'd still it's so hard because you know it's one year in and we don't know what the Suns are actually going to put around him in the future. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think I'd still take Aiton just for the homer in me, but JJJ would be very close in that discussion. Yeah, again, this this group's a lot like the last group in terms of that. I think there's a decent amount of those guys who I think maybe have a better expected value than DeAndre Aiton does. But DeAndre mm-hmm. Aiton's upside is enough for me to take him over all of them except. And I apologize, listeners. I know you're not going to like this. I would take Jaron Jackson Jr. over him. Um, again, I think Aiton has the higher upside because he could be more of a two-way force. He could be. He could. I, I think Aiton could be like a top five player in the NBA. That's a possibility. I don't mm-hmm. totally see that for Jaron Jackson Jr. But I do see Jaron Jackson being the second best player on a playoff team, like pretty easily. Uh, yep. I see that outcome for him, and I'm just. I would just bet on that. That's a high enough outcome for me. Uh, one, one thing people also, just real quickly, always say about JJJ is, oh, he, he didn't play very much. How do you know that he he's all that good? He played a decent amount. He, he played 58 games. Aiton only played 71. So it wasn't like Aiton really played a ton more games than Jaron Jackson did. And, you know, some of what Jer- – I mean, he had some really, really important, impressive games. Some of the shooting – his shooting is already, you know, a, a skill for him. Uh, yeah. He was like 88 percentiles of rim protection a lot of ways. So I, I, I'm rambling here, but, yes, I need to defend that take. I, I think Jaron Jackson Jr. is really, really good. If we're talking meaningful games, Jaron Jackson Jr. might have played more than Aiton. Yeah, that's true. That's very, very true. I'm still taking Aiton in that battle, but year two is going to be huge. Uh, yeah. As I said, being very positive about Aiton, but I'm going to be very, very hard on him this year, which might put a few listeners off, but we shall see. Now, group five, the heavyweights, guys. We've got Jokic, Gobert, Towns, Porzingis, Turner, and Embiid. It's probably worth flipping it the other way here, Max, and telling me who you wouldn't take over DeAndre Ayton. Sure. So, sorry, I, I, can you read that one more time? Yeah, we'll go We'll go one by one. I'll get both of your answers. So, Nikola Jokic, uh, would you take Ayton or him, Max? Jokic. Gerald? Yeah, Jokic. Uh, Rudy Gobert? Hmm, Gerald, what do you think? How old is Gobert right now? He's 29? That one's tough because... He's 27. So in his age 30 season, he'll still be pretty damn good. Um, just for the defense alone, I, I got to go with Gobert on this one. Mm-hmm. I think I'll split here. Um, Gobert is really, really, really good. But the the upside thing for me, again, it's – I know it's three or four years, but also, like, you know, you're getting 24-year-old Aiton or whatever it'll be, and you're getting 30-year-old Gobert. I, I, I still have that factor in a little bit how it's still going forward. Yeah. Um, I think Gobert is somebody who could fall off kind of precipitously. Carl Anthony Towns. 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 Poor Zingus. Aiton. Yeah, I'm going to go Aiton just because I I would need to see what he does next year because there's very little precedent for a guy that size with that body frame coming off an ACL tear like that. So I, I think I'd go – oddly, the safer choice feels like Aiton right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Miles Turner. 
Aiton. Yeah, Aiton. And Joel Embiid. 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 All right. Well, we're pretty much on the same page here, guys. We all said Jokic, Towns, and Embiid comfortably over Aiton, which puts Aiton around fourth. And then you both lent JJJ right now, which is a uh, hot topic for, to watch in season two, I suppose. Uh, one of you went Gobert, and we both discounted Turner and Porzingis. So as I said, that was basically the group, those guys there, where you look at him maybe at his peak being around the fourth best center in the NBA behind you know some of those guys that it's just going to be pretty much impossible for him to leap over in three years time and at worst you know still top 10 probably in the nba max yeah real quick i want to touch you on these two guys i think these two they're not centers that's why they didn't include them but i think they're really interesting and Mm -hmm. uh, that's john collins and marvin bagley how do you view him versus those guys Good question. I'm not a big fan of John Collins, so uh, a, a real tough one for me to have a fair judgment on, I suppose. I just think his defense, you know, we talk about Aiton's defense. John Collins is, is really bad and has uh, less upside there, in my opinion. Uh, and he's kind of creation. I think he's great pick and roll. He's going to be a great partner for Trey Young. Uh, decent shooter so far in the NBA, but you know, creating for himself, I think he's, it's going to be a little tough for John Collins. So I'm definitely taking Aiton over him. Bagley's an interesting one. You want to talk about guys who didn't actually play all that much uh, or in the right role. I think he really suffered from that. Uh, and that's going to be a real case of um, the King's development. I, I'm seeing some scary signs that they still think he's you know, a hyper wing in the NBA, Max, which is not... <laughs> Not a good sign for Marvin Bagley, but I'm still taking Aiton in in that bout. Gerald? Yeah, I, I think I would have to agree with everything David said there. Um, I, I do like John Collins, but I agree that the defensive upside is not there like it is with Aiton. Um, so I, I would take Aiton over him. And as far as Bagley, I think that could be a really interesting conversation if the Kings put him in the right spot and um, – but that's not a given. So I'm, I'm going to go with yeah. eight. <laughs> yeah, I think I take eight over them both too. Bagley, man, it's close. Like some of the games that he put together last year, he's got some ridiculous upside. He's the opposite of the rest of this conversation where I'm saying I'm taking the eight and upside over the safety. Here I'm taking mm-hmm. an eight and safety, I think, over Bagley's upside. I, uh, Bagley was such a good prospect early on. I think people kind of forgot about it. And, oh, my God, that, some of the stuff that I could do, he, he's kind of freakish, man. Mm-hmm. All right, I think that's it for this. David, you want to go to uh, Did You Know? We have covered a lot of DeAndre Ayton for the listeners, so let's move on, Max. All right, episode 61 this week and our last positional pod of the series focused on the center position. So did you know it has been 20 seasons since a center won the MVP award in the NBA? Early quiz for you both. One of you can jump in. Can you tell me who that MVP was, guys? 20 seasons ago. Uh, was that Carl Malone you're talking about? No, a center. No. Oh, a center. Okay. Shaq? It was Shaq. That's right. You have to go all the way back to the 99-2000 season where 27-year-old Shaquille O'Neal took out the best player award with the Lakers in a top five that it consisted of O'Neal, Garnett, Alonzo Mourning, Carl Malone, as you said, Max, and Tim Duncan. Ever since then, the award has been dominated by guards and wings with the occasional power forward thrown in the mix. In fact, since that 99 season, only two centers have even featured in the top three of voting over the course of 20 seasons. 
I'll let you both put your brains together again here on this one. Who would they have been? Two over the last 20. Dwight Howard, probably. Correct. In 2010-11 for Orlando, he came second to Rosen in front of LeBron as a 25-year-old who scored 22.9 points, 4.1 rebounds, and 2.4 blocked shots. And the other one? Did you say bigs or centers? Centers. How I didn't know it didn't get to three. I top five though, right? Hmm. Same with then Blake's not a center, but Blake was I think top five too. Um, are we tough. are we counting Garnett as a center or as a power forward? We are not. He's a power forward in my book. Okay. okay. Yao never got quite that high, did he? No, probably never played enough games. Yeah. Huh. It's a bit and of a bit of a trick question. Is it Shaq again? It was. You got it. So, um, ex-son Shaquille O'Neal, 2004-05 for Miami this time. He came second to another ex-son, Steve Nash, as a 32-year-old with 58 first-place votes to Nash's 65. Shaq had 22.9, the same as Howard, 10.4 rebounds and 2.3 blocks that season. Honorable mention to yet another ex-son, even only for a brief moment, Jermaine O'Neal in the 0304 <laughs> season, he came third to two port power forwards, Garnett and Duncan, but he also played power forward that season next to Jeff Foster for the Pacers. So I had to exclude him from the argument, but he had 20.1 points, 10 rebounds and 2.6 blocks as a 25-year-old that year with the Pacers winning 61 games. Now, a brief aside, we brought up Duncan there. I'm firmly in the camp that he is a center if you have to pick one position for him, but he played 10 seasons at center and nine at power forward, but he was treated as a power forward for this exercise because it was all the years where he played next to David Robertson and a few others. But for argument's sake, Duncan won his first MVP at age 25 also. But speaking of the Admiral, Robinson and Hakeem Olajuwon were the two centers to win MVPs prior to Shaq, but those two were at ages 29 and 31, respectively. They did it in back-to-back years between 93 and 95. Robertson had 27.6 points, 10.8 rebounds, and 3.2 blocks in 94, while Olajuwon had 27.3 points, 11.9 rebounds, and 3.7 blocks a game in 93-94. Now, Max and Gerald, Two questions for you both, and I promise they are the last of the segment. No more tests after this. Before Olajuwon won in 94, you have to go back 10 seasons before another center won the MVP in 82-83. I want you to tell me two things. Who was that center? And I want you to name the four players who took out every MVP award in that 10-year span. All very famous names. I think I know the answer to the center question. Uh, do you know yeah, I think I think so. Is is he a biblical prophet? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. It was Moses Malone won his third and final MVP in '82 at 27, with his first coming at just 23 years of age. His stats that year: 24.5 points, 15.3 boards, and two blocks per game. But the four guys that won. All the MVPs in that 10-year gap, guys. Give me the four names if you can. I think I – Jared, you want to rattle them off with me? I think the three of them are very obvious. <laughs> right. So Magic and Larry. Yeah. Yep. And then MJ. Yes. 
And then I think That's... the other one, if the 94 is the cutoff, I think I, the other one should be pretty obvious to us. Was that uh, was that the year Hakeem won it? So I think it's the year before that, right, David? Yep, I think you're on the right track here, Max. Put us out of our misery. Charles Barkley. <laughs> oh, Correct. there we go. How can I Michael... forget Charles? <laughs> <laughs> so MJ won three of his five MVPs in that span with the Bulls. Magic took out three of the MVPs also in that time. And Larry Bird, as you mentioned, won three in a row in the first three years of this time frame. And of course, to bring a little bit more Suns flavor to the segment, Charles Barkley won the MVP prior to Hakeem as Gerald said, in 92-93. Now, Max, I'm sure everyone listening has eaten in their mind after our hour or so discussion on him while listening to us talk about him prior to Did You Know and me rattling off the Senna MVP facts on a Suns podcast. Whilst I think it's highly unlikely DeAndre ever reaches MVP status, I did want to point out both the way the league has gone and what past MVPs have done at the position. Now, we may see things trend the other way soon before even Aiton, Guys, we talked about before, Nikola Jokic, Carl anthony Towns, and Joel Embiid may lay claim to their own MVP trophy. But if the past tells us anything, it's that you have to be truly dominant on both ends. But to finish this one off, Max, and bring in the number 61 for our episode this week, we're going to bring back Moses Malone in 82. There have been 64 NBA seasons in which the MVP award has been handed out but there was two lockout seasons where games were affected. So purely to help me rig the numbers on this, we're going to take those two seasons out, which gets us to 62. And then to help me skew the numbers again, we're going to use Moses Malone's season, his last MVP in 82, as the divider between what I'm calling two eras in 1982 to give us 61 awards for the 61st episode. I'm sure he liked how I did that, Max. <laughs> now, Max, there have been 11 individual winners of the award at center who have collected 25 MVP trophies between them. Prior to Moses in 82, we had Kareem, who had six, Moses again, three, Bill Walton, Dave Cowens, Willis Reed, Wes Unseld, Wilt Chamberlain, who had four, and Bill Russell, who had five. They took out 20 of the possible 27 MVPs in the pre-Malone 82 era, or 74% of the awards. Since 1982 and removing lockouts, only Shaq, Robertson, and Elijah One won the award once each for three out of a possible 34, or max roughly 9% in which I am calling the era post-Malone. So, Max, now that we are through the history of MVPs at Senna, I'll leave you guys and the listeners with two more strings of stats. The reason I've been mentioning ages and stats is because I took all the past winners and averaged out their age at a time of winning their first MVP and also their stats. This isn't a test for you guys, but if you want to have a guess, what do you think the average age of a first-time winner at Senna is? Mm. I, that's really hard. I'd say 27. Gerald? 26. It is 25.18, so you're both pretty close on that one. And the average stats without Russell, Wilt, Unseld, and Reed, because their rebound stats are absurd, and we also don't have block numbers for most of those seasons, but it's 26.3 points, 13.8 boards, and 2.8 blocks. So for DeAndre Ayton, 
and the pessimist, we have a little bit of time before history suggests he should reach that prime of winning an MVP. But also for the Aiton optimists, he also has a hell of a lot of work to do to ever reach true dominant status. But speaking of true dominant status at the centre position, Max, shall we talk about my guy, Aaron Baines? <laughs> that was a great segue, David. Uh, <laughs> for most players, we like to start with their on-court presence. But for me, I think that Aaron Baines' off-court presence could be just as important, especially if you consider mm-hmm. practice. Gerald, what do you think about Aaron Baines' impact on DeAndre Ayton? Are you as high on it as it seems that James Jones is? I'm, I don't know if I'm as high on it as James Jones is because, you know, as we've talked about over the summer on Twitter ad nauseum, um, that those conjunction of moves after the TJ Warren salary dump was an interesting, like they just, they basically piled on a lot of the same money that they had just shed off. But I do mm-hmm. really like the player that they added. Um, and I do like his potential impact on Aiton. Um, you know, you look at Rashawn Holmes and you would expect that type of energy and just, you know, just pure energy off the bench that he brings. You would have expected that to rub off on Aiton, but there's a difference between a guy that's trying to prove himself in the league and a guy who's established in the league and has that same kind of knowledge to pass on to somebody else. And I yeah. think that's where people got confused. Like, they were saying like, well, Holmes didn't rub off on Aiton. Well, Holmes was trying to carve out a space for himself in the yeah. NBA. He's not trying to teach a rookie, you know, how to how to play like that. I think um, I think Baines is a very tough, hard nosed defender, and that is the kind of stuff that's going to rub off on Aiton more than watching a guy, you know, try to make his way in the league. Um, I think Baines is the exact type of guy you want to toughen your center up if that's what you're worried about or to get him to, you know, focus more or, you know, just care more on the defensive end. Baines is exactly (laughs) that type of guy. Um, You know, he's just a rigid, like the beard and like the dude is just a man. Mm -hmm. He's a man. (laughs) That's what what they need to raise Aiden. They want him to become a man. They're feeding him so he can grow up. Um, And I think Aiden is a perfect guy to have behind someone like that. Yeah, you nailed the difference there to me is that yeah, Rashawn Holmes is an awesome energy guy at the bench last year. He really, you know, he put on a great performance as a backup center, even though he's not really a backup center. He kind of is. Um, Aaron Baines is going to kick DeAndre's Ayton's ass in practice. He's going to beat him <laughs> up. I, I, I imagine in practice, Holmes may have embarrassed Ayton a little bit here or there just due to pure effort, but I doubt he put him on the floor very many times. Uh, Aaron Baines mm-hmm. is going to put DeAndre Ayton on the floor, and he's, he's going to make DeAndre Ayton man up just to play against him. And I think that's just going to do wonders for, for DeAndre Ayton because, as James Jones pointed out, uh, DeAndre Ayton didn't bring his effort in every single game last season. I think it's pretty obvious to everybody. And James Jones was even willing to admit it on live TV, so pretty obvious that it's not a secret. Um, mm. So it's just having a guy who you know, currently is kicking, you know, kicking, ass, kicking ass relatively for a national team, some of the screens he's setting and stuff like that, uh, played for the Boston Celtics, you know, one of the smartest organizations in the league, one of the best coaches in the league. He's just going to bring all that to DeAndre Ayton every single day. And it's just a different thing from uh, a young, like Gerald said, player trying to carve his way in the league. David, anything else on the off-court stuff? And you can also lead us into the on-court stuff. No, you know, we've been pretty vocal on this, Max. I was really interested to see what Gerald uh, went over here. And the both of you have pretty much touched on all my notes. I I didn't want it to be a a Rashan, you know, bashing segment because I loved his time in Phoenix, but, you know, Aiton should be getting up to around 35 minutes per game. And uh, my main point to to make here, Gerald nailed off the top there, is 
Holmes is still trying to make his way, he's still trying to get paid and, and prove himself in the NBA. And that's not the guy that you want uh, leading or showing Aiton a lot of these things. And as I've said, Aiton's a sponge. Baines has got championship pedigree. Uh, it's funny you, men in, you know, mentioned him putting uh, Aiton on his ass in practice. I think you'll be putting everyone on their ass with those screens. There was a great <laughs> quote going into the World Cup with one of the uh, Australian guards, Chris Goulding, uh, who said that they were just looking forward to getting the world to the World Cup and, and playing other teams instead of playing Aaron Baines in practice because everyone's sick of getting hit <laughs> hit by his screen. So uh, there's proof right there that he plays the exact same way at practice that he does uh, in games. And and that's what Aiton needs. And, you know, the one thing that I watch with him is Aiton is so much more athletic and gifted than Aaron Baines. So when he sees Baines get open dunks off setting good screens or he's, you know, getting shown some of those little tricks that Baines has in terms of boxing guys out and things like that. Um, that's what's really going to pay off for Aiton because he's so much more gifted than Aaron Baines. So you couple those two things together and that's where a move like this will really pay off, you know, off the court. But on the court, Max, as you said, I'll throw to that. I found two really interesting things with Baines on the court. He had 7.1 screen assists per 36 last year for 16.6 points. That would count for third in the entire NBA if you went off per 36 numbers, only behind Cody Zeller and Marcin Gortat. And box outs, 13.5 per 36, 10.1 defensive, 3.5 offensive. That would be second in the NBA, only to another guy we love, Ed Davis. So, that's who he is on the court, Max. He does all the dirty stuff, you know, sealing, rotating, calling the defense. I love watching him anchor the Australian defense. He doesn't shut up. And, you know, I'm a little concerned at the, you know, his declining mobility. I'm really watching that in the World Cup. He does appear to be getting a little looser as we go. So that's kind of who he is. He's a, he's a garbage man. He cleans everything mm-hmm. up on the court. Uh, and a, a great guy that they're going to be able to throw in on nights that Aiton is struggling, as I mentioned before from that James Jones quote. But I'll throw to you guys for your thoughts as well as a question that we got from Martin Bendler on Twitter uh, about Ains and Baines playing together, which he's not the first one to ask that. We get it quite a lot, Max. Uh, I absolutely hate the idea, and I think it is basically straight admitting that you made the wrong choice at number one in the draft if you start doing that. But, Gerald, we'll throw to you on the court maybe to answer that question or or touch on something that you like from Aaron Baines. So two thoughts. As far as them playing together, I really do not like that idea. Um, I think you're right on the money, and I think it also goes back to what Max alluded to earlier. Like, man, if only they could find a rim-protecting forward to play next to Aiton, someone young. Exactly. Yeah. so I, I have no idea why they would do that. I hope they don't do that. But no, I, I like, I mean, you you hit the nail right on the head as far as Bain's screen setting ability. Um, I think it was Matt Moore the other day on Twitter was looking through Sun's plays and kind of linking some some plays that just confounded him. And there was one where Dragon Bender was setting a screen and then slipped the screen in the middle of setting it. Like he, he, was, <laughs> he had contact, he had the guy locked in and then slipped it for no reason. Like, just being able to have a guy, like we've talked about with Rubio, being able to throw competent injury passes, being able to have a guy that can set actual screens is going to do wonders for Booker, for Rubio. 
um, for Aiton by extension, for Bridges, like for everybody. Um, yeah. The guy is like a brick wall when you run into him. And that, I feel like, is one of my favorite things about him. Um, you know, he's going to end up on the wrong side of a couple of posters. I mean, you look over the last few years and you can probably think of a few off the top of your head. But yep. that's, the kind of, that's the kind of effort that Aiton needs to see because we talked about his unwillingness to contest shots sometimes. I think the ones that Baines does get, because he does get a few, hopefully that kind of effort will rub off on Aiton and it'll instill that, you know, nothing easy mentality at the rim that you need from your rim protector. Knowing Aaron Baines pretty well, Max, I think he if you can choose anyone to convince DeAndre Ayton that it's okay to be put on a poster every now and then to get a reputation as a guy who challenges shots, Aaron Baines is the guy that I would trust in the locker room to make that point to DeAndre Ayton and convince him that it's not the worst thing in the world to end up on a, a highlight reel, the, the bad end of a highlight reel every now and then. Now that uh, Aaron Baines is on the Phoenix Suns, he's got to get with the program and not get embarrassed by Milwaukee. It, we, we beat Milwaukee <laughs> and Phoenix, okay? We're, we're Milwaukee killers. But, uh, yeah, no, I just echo everything you guys said. But part of why I was so high on this offseason compared to most people, especially in the national media, is that they got a whole bunch of guys who know, like, how to play basketball correctly and can help yeah. the young guys that, you know, need to learn how to do that. Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, and Mikkel Bridges. Uh, Mikkel, Mikkel knows better than most, but the other two. You can't learn how to play basketball if you're in what the Suns were doing last year. As, as you pointed out, Gerald, Matt Moore did a good job showing some of the confounding things that happened last year. <laughs> that If you just bring in Aaron Baines in a vacuum, like if you add Aaron Baines to last year's Suns in, in place of Holmes, it doesn't work. That's not enough. But the fact that they brought in Baines and a bunch of other guys like that who know how to play, Rubio you mentioned, uh, we Tyler Johnson was in the offseason, but it was, you know, it, was, it was late in the season last season. Uh, Oubre tries really hard, even if he's not – you know, the most aware on defense, at least he's trying very hard. Uh, I would even throw Sarge in as a guy who knows what he's doing. You got to reach a critical mass of knowing what you're doing. And I think Baines is a huge part of that uh, for this team. He's going to be probably the smartest player on the bench unit, except for maybe Mikel. So I'm, I'm just really high on the acquisition for that reason. Uh, the one thing I'm really scared about, and this will serve, I think, as a nice segue into our last little bit here. Uh, Aaron Baines does struggle with health sometimes. He's also mm-hmm. an older player, and it may get even worse. So if Aaron Baines goes down for you know any extended amount of time, uh, what else are the Suns going to do at the backup center, Gerald? Do you think it's, is it going to be all Kaminsky all the time, and are U of A fans going to have to stop watching the team? Uh, is it going to be a Diallo, or what do you think? I, I think they would start with Kaminsky there just because I, I feel like he's, you know, with Charlotte, he did play some time at center. He did play at power forward as well, I believe. But um, I think you start with Kaminsky, and if he's not, panning out you give Diallo a shot there even though he's typically more described as a power forward mm-hmm. um, but I mean if you're if you're at that point you <laughs> it's it's mm-hmm. only going to be a marginal difference between the two I feel like obviously they have a very different set of strengths and weaknesses um, Kaminsky can spread the floor a little bit more nowhere near as athletic um, probably a little bit smarter on the offensive end Diallo more athletic um, closer to a rim protector I would think but um, yeah, you know, you mentioned it. He did miss 31 games last year. Um, the three seasons prior, he was healthy. I think he played, let's see, he played 81 and then 75 and then 81. So that's a good sign. But, you know, hopefully he can stay healthy and it doesn't come to that would be my answer. That's a good answer. <laughs> David? <laughs> yeah, he's he's going to be 33 early in this season and, and you both have nailed 
the the segue here to to these last guys brilliantly. I had the same point, Max. Fifty one games last season, and he's going to be thirty three. So how much can we count on him? We'll be be seeing some others, and you know I've said it quite a bit. I think we'll see Frank and Diallo, you know, maybe playing the five role on offense a little bit, even though they might be starting or or playing the game as a more traditional power forward. You know, Frank you know, is a decent ISO scorer down on the block and, and shoots from deep, obviously. And uh, Diallo's a, a role threat and kind of sits in that dunker spot as a five guy as well. So that's going to be really interesting. Uh, shout out to OutRenting on Twitter, who even mentioned maybe trying to play Saric as a, a small ball five on occasion. You know, he is 6'10". You put the right guys around him, you might be able to insulate him a little bit if health gets a little bit of a concern. But yeah, I hopefully, fingers crossed, we get a decent season out of Aaron Baines as the backup playing, you know, around about 15 minutes a night, I suppose, you know, what, what do you think on that, Max? Are we wanting to see eight and I think he was around 30 minutes in his rookie season. We probably want to see that bump up to around 33, 34. Yeah, that's about right. I think Aaron Baines minutes should just be, you know, whatever eight and doesn't play exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I can see it being around there. Uh, one, one last thing I have on this before we go to seven seconds or less. I want you guys to tell me how crazy I am. Are there any teams in the league? And you know, it's to be against backup units. So hopefully, I'm trying to think of there's like a, a really a shorter week backup center out there somewhere. But if the Suns just wanted to kind of just punt on defense to an extent and just try to have a crazy shooting lineup, is there any way they could get away with playing Cam Johnson as a center against certain lineups? <laughs> <laughs> We've given Cam Johnson, or or the Suns have given Cam Johnson just about every position other than point guard and center when they talk about his versatility. So we may as well throw center in there as the 6'9 guy, Max. But, um, yeah, I think that's how you optimize him. Again, it's all about insulation. You've got to put some other guys in there that, that kind of help maybe with some rim protection and stuff. Definitely the, the film that I've watched just in terms of staying high and uh, you know, staying in front of guys. And I guess on the other end, as you say, if you're just punting on defense, he can generally, you know, attack closeouts from big guys and stuff pretty well. So I think to a certain degree, we might get into this on a, another episode. Uh, the Suns are, are punting defense a little <laughs> bit, Max, but, uh, you know, maybe just outshoot everyone every night. Go back to the, the seven seconds or less days uh, in a slightly different uh, turn for this season and, and just put up 130 every night to 129. But uh, we should probably throw to seven seconds or less there, Max, other than maybe just mentioning very quickly that Baines is a decent shooter from three. We're seeing that a little bit in the World Cup, 34.4% last season, which was pretty much the first season he was given the green light to actually shoot the three. So mostly above the break from him. We'll, we'll see if that uh, ties into what we spoke about up the top of the episode with Aiton and, and whether the centers are allowed to shoot the three by Monty in this offense. Gerald, anything else in the backup centers, including I've now put in Cam Johnson as a backup center? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there have been concerns about him being able to play the four, so if those concerns are still going to exist, you might as well just put a bunch of shooters around him and see what happens. <laughs> Just shoot, guys. I will get it. Do you mean to to put a bunch of shooters around and and essentially play him as a hybrid point guard center? There is that <laughs> is that the versatility we're talking about? Oh yeah, let's just let's get <laughs> all five positions from Cam Johnson. Uh, all right, moving on to seven seconds or less. The segment where when we have a guest now, all three of us ask the others uh, one question for which they have seven seconds or less to answer and have not prepared. Gerald, you're the guest. We'll give you the honor of going first. What is your seven seconds or less question? 
Okay, I'm glad David brought this up actually right before we got here. So Baines, 34.4% from three last year. Um, he only took 62 three or 61 threes, and that was a career high, 1.2 per game. Before that, his career high was 0.3 per game. <laughs> How many threes per game are you comfortable with him taking this year? Comfortable with? That's an interesting way to phrase it. <laughs> David, you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, we talked about it before. Uh, really good that Gerald had this as his question. So I'm going to go, I'll throw Aiton in there as well. I want Aiton to shoot one three a game in his 33 or so minutes uh, next season. And I'd be happy to answer your question with Baines also taking one three a game in his 15 minutes for the sun. So, you know, I'm going to say he's going to play 80 games next year as the backup center and be super positive on that angle. So we'll see him launch around 80, 85 threes for the season. I want him to shoot 6.3 threes per game. (laughs) (laughs) That's how many Brook Lopez shot. Uh, (laughs) That's actually what I want. I want him to shoot. Yeah, I I think a little higher. I wouldn't mind seeing him shoot a little bit more. Let's get up to like 1.8. Why not? Fun to watch. Um, Let's do it. I think he can probably do it, you know, especially with Rubio as the guy setting him up. Kyrie, you know, maybe maybe a little more ball dominant. I'm not sure. So uh, <laughs> we'll see. David, you want to go next? I'll go next. I've gone pretty wild with my one here, Max. So you can pick any guard in the NBA to add four to six inches to and turn them into a versatile small ball center in the NBA. Who do you choose? I'll give you mine first to give you both a little bit of time to think about it. I'd take my guy, Drew Holiday, who had 0.8 blocks last season to lead all guards in the NBA, and I think he would be an absolute monster as a 6'9", 6'10", small ball five in the NBA, Max. But who are you thinking? Give me a, give me a mutant. We're back to mutant questions I here on the 7 Seconds or Less podcast. Um, if I could go prime, I would go prime Westbrook because he would just run people the hell over. Oh, Yes. But now, probably not so anymore. Oh, man, that's a really tough one. Maybe, you know, I'll go young. Shake will just Alexander because he's already kind of big. Could be really interesting in that role. Yep. Really yeah. long, too. Yep. Mm, yikes, this is a tough one. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go shoot, four to six inches, huh? I'm going to go Devin Booker, honestly. <laughs> I'm mm, say hey. Hey. Give that man – I mean, he's already got a deadly post game. Give him another yep. four to six inches that dude is unstoppable on the block we already saw him play for the mavericks back in the day his name was dirk davitsky yeah (laughs) exactly and maybe he'd be better defensively with that much longer of a wingspan it's it's definitely possible um (laughs) all right mine's gonna go back to the focus of this episode deandre ayton uh i've taken the liberty of identifying what i think are ayton's primary areas of necessary improvement not counting like you know uh intangible stuff not counting like that uh shooting Foul drawing and rim protection. Uh, we'll start with David. Rank those three things in terms of importance for you for his development. Oh, shooting, rim foul protection, foul drawing. I am going to keep with my themes throughout this episode, and I will go foul drawing number one, rim protection number two, and shooting number three. Gerald, over to you. I'm going to go rim protection number one. Uh, shooting number two, foul drawing number three. Mm. Yeah, I have the same answer to Gerald. Uh, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, when you asked, shooting's more because I think that's what he needs to do. If he could be an excellent foul drawer, I'd go that way. But I think that is it for us. Gerald, thank you so much for coming on. Please promote anything you want. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, you can read all my stuff on the Step Back. We've got a lot of talented writers over there. It's been awesome working with all these new people. And um, you can find me on Twitter at G-E-R-A-L-D-B-O-U-R-G-U-E-T. Awesome. Well, as far as we go, please, as always, rate, review, and subscribe. You can follow me at MaxMCC11. Follow David at The Four Point Play. David, any reviews to read out? Yeah, shout out to Ben Leach. Awesome work from Max and David. Always insightful, interesting content, and great guests, which Gerald has definitely been one for us this episode, Max. He said, keep up the good work, guys. And we are up to 89 five stars on iTunes and well on our way to the target that I said of 100 before the season starts, Max. So this was a hell of a lot of fun. Thanks again to Gerald for joining us. And hopefully everyone enjoyed the content. We got a three-star review over the past couple of weeks. It initially started as a one-star and the person that upped it. So I, I thank you for upping us two points. And uh, if we impress you today or if you like Gerald, feel free to up it two more. <laughs> Love it. Thanks, Max. <laughs> Thanks, everybody.